Hello, greetings, and welcome. During his life and ever since, Jesus of Nazareth proved and continues to prove to be an important and yet contentious figure. People have been wondering for years, those who've heard of him, then and ever since, who is he? Where did he come from? And what is he about? And of course, throughout time, there's been no lack of answers coming from all sorts of different sources. This question comes to every generation. It comes to ours as well. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who do people think that Jesus is? What can we actually know about Jesus? How can we best understand Jesus and his purposes? And what, if anything, does Jesus have to do with us today? As we begin, it's good for us to spend a moment to think. When you think about Jesus, what comes to mind? And what does the average 21st century American think and have come to mind when they hear about Jesus? There's a popular physical portrayal. A white male in his 30s with long hair and beard, somebody who's mild, gentle, soft-spoken, and would otherwise be unassuming if it weren't for the large crowds following him. A lot of people will recognize him as a good teacher. A lot of people think of him like Socrates, who expounds on philosophy. Almost everybody feels like he taught good things that people should do. People generally know that he died. We can kind of imagine some scene where he's on a crucifix. Maybe you've seen one in a church before, or in uh, some other place. There are a lot of people who will throw out a lot of terms to speak about Jesus, even if they don't know exactly what those terms might mean. Christ, Savior, Lord, Prophet, God, or Son of God. And apart from all, that's the media portrayal. Jesus the Gnostic, a teacher of secret wisdom. And Jesus of the Da Vinci Code, somebody maybe secretly married to Mary Magdalene and having descendants as kings in Europe, involving the Holy Grail, a church conspiracy, Opus Dei, and things like that. In general, though, there's a general belief in our culture that the real Jesus has very little to do with Jesus of faith. A lot of people are willing to see some kind of conspiracy where the church, and especially Roman Catholicism, is trying to control people. Others see him as a populist Jewish zealot who failed to instigate uh, a revolution against the Romans. But what's really interesting, if we think about it, is that so many times people like to see Jesus in the terms of their own ideology and motivations. For the zealot, Jesus is a zealot. For the one who likes the establishment, Jesus upholds the status quo. You can make Jesus out to be a Marxist, a conservative, a feminist, or a patriarchal supporter, a globalist, a nationalist, and a host of other things. People will do whatever they can to get Jesus to be on their side. And they'll be willing to distort any number of things he said or did in the process. And so, throughout time, people have made love or war in the name of Jesus, upheld the authorities or revolted against them in the name of Jesus, justified just about any social movement in the name of Jesus, and so on and so forth. And we see this playing out to this very day. Everyone tries to claim that Jesus upholds their particular political or ideological agenda. He's a radical leftist to some, he's a stalwart conservative to others, and so on and so forth. And so, hey, we totally understand why people are confused. Because if Jesus can be used to commend or reject just about anything, and people make all kinds of claims about who he was or what he did, and what he represents, and if everybody is trying to make Jesus fit their own desires, how can we learn anything about the Jesus who actually existed? 
And so the question really begins, if we want to know who Jesus is, we've got to know where we can turn to to learn about Jesus. What immediately commends itself are the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. People generally recognize that those are the primary story, sources about the story of Jesus. That these works claim, or have a claim for them, that they are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, resurrection or accounts recorded from eyewitnesses. We see that at the beginning of Luke's Gospel in John 20 and in 21. A lot of scholars have tried to be dismissive of these claims, but they can still be credibly understood as having been written mostly within 40 and definitely within 70 years of Jesus' death. And by common confession, even within scholarship, they represent one of the earliest preserved levels of stories about Jesus. We also learn what the apostles thought of Jesus based on their letters in the rest of the New Testament. And we can maintain confidence that the apostles did indeed write those letters, that they had seen Jesus teach and preach. Now, there are a lot of people out there who might want to claim that the Gospels have distorted the message of Jesus. And a lot of those people want to turn to later stories written by Gnostics. We've used that word already. Gnostics were people influenced by both Jesus and Greek philosophy. And they came up with this entire system where they could understand why Jesus came in a way that made sense with Greek philosophy. So they denied Jesus' physicality. They, they suggested that his purpose was to come and bring special knowledge to overcome the evil physical universe. Now we can make a lot of sense of why Greeks would want to distort the message of Jesus that way. We would understand why a lot of modern Westerners would go along with it. But it's a lot harder to make any sort of sense of that message in terms of the world of the first century in Israel. Because most of these secret books or extra gospels that you hear about, those are written from the, by the Gnostics mostly, written far later, and they're not eyewitness testimony of Jesus. So we can also gain some understanding from historical accounts that speak about the Christ spread of Christianity and the beliefs of Christians. And it's all consistent with what has been preserved in the New Testament and in early Christian literature. So if we're going to want to understand who Jesus is, we're going to need to explore the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels. Because the story of Jesus is told in the Gospel narratives. But the problem even there is that these Gospels have been read for 2,000 years almost now. And people have found all kinds of ways to read what they want into them. Now, can we have any confidence that we can read and understand the Gospels so that as to learn who Jesus is, as opposed to the Jesus we might want to imagine existed, or that those who before us have imagined existed? I'd like to suggest for our conversation that there is a couple of factual anchors, things that are true and that we can use to kind of provide some grounding for any exploration of the Gospels. The first of these factual anchors is that Jesus of Nazareth lived and died as in the first century under the Roman Empire as a Jew of the Second Temple period. And so everything that we would establish about Jesus needs to make sense in the context of Second Temple Judaism under the Roman Empire. And the second is that soon after uh, these events uh, were purported to take place, people began to declare that God raised Jesus from the dead in the days of Tiberius Caesar. They believed that he was Lord, and they, lived, and they lived transformed lives because they believed he was Lord. And that this message would take over the Roman Empire and change the world. And so everything that we might establish about Jesus also needs to make sense of these developments. 
So we need to understand Jesus himself as a first century Jew, but we also need to understand how it would be that this whole movement would have originated from him and what he said. And therefore, let's use those guides to help us understand the story of Jesus in the Gospels. Because we can profitably understand the story of Jesus in the Gospels in terms of the history of Israel, its hopes and expectations, and the fulfillment of all that God had promised through the prophets. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew goes uh, to great care to demonstrate how Jesus was born according to all that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. He begins the gospel with a list of genealogies going from Abraham to Jesus. He talks about how the virgin would conceive and bear a son and would call his name Emmanuel in Matthew 1.23, a quotation from Isaiah chapter 7. In chapter 2, uh, they quote, and, o you, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, Matthew 2.6, quoting Micah 5.2, showing that he was born exactly as had been expected by the prophets. He had to be exiled to Egypt for some time. He was tempted in the wilderness, and he ministered among the Israelites in the first couple of chapters of Matthew uh, through chapter 4. The way of Jesus was prepared by John the Baptist, a prophet whose voice called out in the wilderness. Uh, Josephus talks about uh, John the Baptist. He's a definite prophetic figure of the first century. And the gospel authors make it clear that he is the Elijah who was to come in Matthew chapter 11 and other places. The one that the prophets had had spoken would come before uh, the Lord. And in Jesus' life, he fulfills what the scriptures had spoken of the Messiah of Israel, the King of the Jews, and the prophet like Moses. A very important verse in this sense is in Matthew chapter 5. As part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so we can look in Jesus' life and see that fulfillment of which he uh, spoke. He provided explanations of matters relating to the law frequently. He refuted the religious authorities. He condemned them for their abuses. We can see this vividly in Matthew 19 and in Matthew uh, chapters 21 through 23, where Jesus is frequently interacting with Pharisees and other religious authorities, and he uh, successfully shows uh, the error of their ways and how they've understood the law in matters uh, relating to God. He demonstrated authority over the forces of earth and the spiritual forces of darkness, and in this way demonstrated the power given to him by God. And he was seen as the Messiah, the Hebrew Moshiach, which means the anointed one. Uh, The one who is anointed is the king of Israel who was supposed to come. And we see this demonstrated in Matthew 4, 23-25, and also in chapter 8. Likewise, Jesus intentionally spoke and acted in terms of the prophets who had come before, especially Elijah, Elisha, and Jeremiah. And the people thought of him as a prophet. Uh, when he asked his disciples in Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? The first answer said, uh, a prophet like Jeremiah. Something of that sort. Uh, we see similar things in Luke 7, uh, 8, and in and, and chapter 24. Uh, where Jesus does things like raising uh, a widow's son and things like that to deliberately evoke um, Elijah and Elisha and said that all the things that he had done were fulfillments of all that had come before. And in this prophetic role that Jesus has, because Jesus is a prophet, 
He condemns Jerusalem and the temple to destruction again on account of the people's rejection of the Christ. Um, all things that he spoke found their fulfillment in that generation, as he spoke of in Matthew 21, 24, and other places. So Jesus is a prophet, not less than a pro- is you know, not less than a prophet. Certainly, even though he may be more, he is definitely not less. Now we can understand how the Roman authority might at first seem very disinterested in Jesus until the religious authorities forced them to see him as a threat, and that they would then have executed him as an insurrectionist. Anybody claiming to be the king of the Jews is taking a prerogative of Caesar, even if uh, he understands that in a way different uh, than perhaps uh, might have been imagined. The idea of bodily resurrection, uh, emphasized so much in John chapter 5 and in Jesus' own experience at the end of all the Gospels, is a very Jewish expectation, Daniel chapter 12. It's something that was not professed or even desired in the Greco-Roman world, and even the Sadducees and others among the Jews uh, denied it and rejected it. Many Jews expected the resurrection of all on the final day. It's kind of the picture you get in Daniel 12, 1 and 2. Martha says that in John 11, 24. So Jesus' resurrection before the general general resurrection is something that we can understand in a Jewish context, but it's not expected in that context. Something that, okay, they could understand somebody being raised from the dead, but they weren't expecting somebody to be raised from the dead before everybody was raised from the dead. And so Jesus took great care to explain precisely how his life, death, and resurrection were the fulfillment of all that had been written about the Messiah, that he would suffer and die and on the third day be raised and then he would obtain all dominion and authority after having ascended back to the father in that way fulfilling isaiah 53 daniel 7 and many other passages we can make sense of that we can see how that works but it was something you would never have put together in that way before it happened you would not have expected that to be the timeline of events but it is all consistent with what had been revealed we can see this in luke 24 44 through 49 And so in this way, we can make sense of Jesus of Nazareth as a first century Palestinian Jew of the Second Temple period. That some understood him as the Messiah of God, the others would have seen him as a false prophet, a threat to the establishment and the status quo. And so in the end, Jesus is able to embody the story of Israel and therefore to bring it to full satisfaction and fulfillment. As Israel went into Egypt, was tempted in the wilderness, lived in land, was exiled and returned, Jesus went into Egypt, was tempted in the wilderness, ministered in the land, was exiled in death, and returned in the resurrection. And in this way, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And so indeed, Jesus was the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. So we can make sense of him as second temple Jewish male. Now how we make sense of how the story of his life, death, and resurrection could take the Roman world by storm. Well, we need to understand the thing that Jesus went about doing in his life that we can see in Matthew chapter 4, where he says in verse 17 that Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached, was in verse 23, the gospel of the kingdom. This is the good news of the kingdom. This good news was that Israel was to repent, to change its hearts and minds, because the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was near. This kingdom of God or heaven is the rule of God who dwells in heaven, that God was going to establish his authority on earth through Jesus' his son. Now, to prepare for that kingdom, Jesus chose 12 men, symbolically representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He taught them and encouraged them extensively to prepare them so they could proclaim this gospel of the kingdom. We can kind of see him doing some of this in Matthew chapter 10. 
Jesus would teach these disciples and the Jewish people in general regarding the ethical life necessary to obtain the kingdom. Something we can see in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, that we've quoted from in Matthew 5-7. through And he would often speak about how this kingdom was going to work in parables, which are true-to-life stories conveying spiritual truths in Matthew 13, verses 1-48. through At his trial, Jesus confessed his identity as the Son of God through appealing to prophecies. He declares in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 64, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Maybe today we kind of scratch our head at what Jesus is trying to say there, but the meaning would be completely clear to any first century Jewish person. He is conflating Psalm 110.1 and Daniel 7.13-14, declaring that he is going to be uh, receiving authority from God and was going to rule. These terms are used so frequently in Christian discourse, and they have very powerful and important meanings and context. We've already talked about Messiah. The Messiah, or the Christ, is the anointed one. In Israel, there was anointed kings and, pro- and priests. As Messiah, Jesus is primarily a king, as a line of David, not Levi. Uh, but also, there is a priestly concept, because he is a priest in the Earl of Melchizedek. Uh, Zechariah 4, 12-14, Matthew 26, 63 here, and also in uh, Hebrew author's letter. A son of David is a way of establishing descent from David and therefore the ability to be a king. Uh, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 22, verses 42-45. Son of God is also a way of speaking about a king, because in Psalm 2, uh, the God declared the king to be a son of a, in a sort when he reigned over uh, um, Israel. But it's also a way of expressing Jesus' divinity, that he is God the Son. In John 1, the first 14 verses, verse 18, and chapter 20, and verse 31. Son of man is just a way of speaking about a human in, in Hebrew. We see that in Psalm 8, 4. Uh, who is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Uh, it's just a human. It maintains a messianic tone because of that prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. Uh, something so important we do well to read it. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, uh, which Jesus saw is very core to his mission. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, who is God, Yahweh, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so, Jesus understands himself as the Danielic one like a son of man, and spoke of his imminent enthronement over a kingdom as had been promised. And on the third day after his death, Jesus was raised from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended to the Father. And in this way, he was given all authority in heaven and on earth, as had been prophesied. And we can see this in the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28, 1 through 28. Matthew 22 and 20, excuse me. So during his time in the resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus explained to his disciples all things regarded himself and commissioned them to go and tell other people of what they had seen of his life and death and resurrection. And we see that in Luke 24, 13 through 49. And so this is how Jesus prepared the kingdom of God to come, which was established in his death and resurrection. 
Now, a lot of times when we talk about Jesus, we end the story there. Okay, Jesus died, was raised, went to heaven, and then we go about talking about everybody else. But what's interesting is Luke, when he writes Acts, he begins the book of Acts by saying, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And he continues on. But notice, began to do and teach. In the Gospel of Luke, the story ends with the resurrection and ascension. And yet Luke says that's only the beginning of what Jesus is doing and teaching. And the reason he says that, if you have a red letter Bible, you can see that a lot of times there's even um, some red letters in the book of Acts. Because Jesus is directing and guiding the apostles as they proclaim the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension, first to Israel, then to all of Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth in Acts 1 and verse 8. So on the day of Pentecost, uh, Jesus would be proclaimed both Lord and Christ of Israel by Peter in Acts 2, 14-36. Lord is a Greek kurios, a title that Caesar also claimed for himself. Likewise, in the Old Testament in Greek, kurios was used as uh, opposed to the divine name Yahweh. And Jesus is going to embody both elements, Lord as one with authority, and Yahweh as a person in the Godhead made known through Paul in Colossians 2. The Lord Jesus, in Acts chapter 10, would appear to Peter in a vision to explain how God's purposes extended beyond Israel and the flesh. That his authority extended over those outside of Israel, that they should hear the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We call those people Gentiles. And they should serve him as Lord as well and be made part of the new Israel surrounding Jesus. Now, it would be recognized that antecedents for this existed within Jesus' life itself. Jesus did come to seek and save the loss of Israel. He emphasized the specificity of that mission, for instance, to a a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. But yet Jesus did heal the slave of a centurion and confessed then that many would come from east and west to sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, that is Israel, would be cast out in Matthew 8, 5-13. And when some Gentiles wanted to see Jesus, he declared that anyone who would serve and follow him would be honored by the Father. In John 12, 20-26. And so while Jesus' specific mission in his life was directed to Israel, his death would be for the sin of all mankind. The hope of the resurrection would be extended to all mankind. That all could be part of the Israel of God, to share the faith of Abraham and all that was declared in the prophets. That in fact, this kingdom over which the Son of Man would rule would have no boundaries and all people will be welcomed into it. And so in Jesus' name, and by his activity and commission, the apostles proclaimed Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, ascension, and exhorted everyone to put their trust in God working in Christ for salvation and the hope of the resurrection. And that is how Jesus is proclaimed as the Savior. He's the one who rescues us from sin and death in Acts 5.31 and 13.23. And this good news went forth throughout the whole Roman Empire and the known world, according to Colossians 1.6. Now, Jesus was spoken of by the apostles as Lord, still fully human in the resurrection. He is human in 1 Timothy 2.5, uh, still in the, years, in, the, in the 60s, 30 years after the resurrection. But the apostles also speak of Jesus as divine and fully God as well. That's how John begins his gospel. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul testifies the same thing in Colossians 2, 1-10, through 10, that in Jesus dwells the fullness of God, the Godhead in bodily form. Peter, by speaking of the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus in 1 Peter 1 and verse 2, seems to do the same. 
Now, the apostles went about telling people the good news, but they also made sure, as John says in John 20, 30-31, uh, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you know, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So they wrote down their witness to Jesus so that that witness could be preserved and proclaimed even after they passed out of this life. And so to this day, we can read their witness, we can hear their witness read, and we can believe ourselves according to their witness. And even though they have passed on, Jesus has not. He died once, never to die again in Romans 6. And so Jesus still is Lord. He's still the sustainer of the universe. God is still working his eternal plan that he's made known and realized in Jesus through his church in Ephesians 3.11, Colossians 1.15-18. And so the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, ascension, is proclaimed to this day, and everyone should believe it. Now, when Jesus did ascend in Acts 1 and verse 11, the angel said that uh, he was going to return in the same way that he left. And in his life, Jesus spoke many times about a return in judgment. In Matthew 24, 37 through 25, verse 46, Jesus spoke in parables to encourage people to be prepared to understand the judgment when Jesus, the Son of Man, returns. In John 5, 28 and 29, he spoke of a day when all would come forth from the tomb, some to a uh, resurrection of life and others by a resurrection of condemnation. That in John 12, verse 48, that we would all be judged by the words of Jesus on the final day. The apostles continued that emphasis, that Jesus is going to return, that everybody needed to repent, or change their hearts and minds to be ready for that day. As uh, part of the uh, proclamation of the gospel in Acts 10, 42 and 43, and 17, 30, 31. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, there's exhortation to Christians to be ready. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, there's a description of that day of judgment where God was going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but would uh, be glorified in all those who are waiting his coming. And we see this in vivid imagery at the end of Revelation, from Revelation 20, 11 through 22 and verse 6. There's a judgment scene where this, all whose names are not in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire, which is a second death. But those whose names are in the book of life obtain the glorious eternity of the people of God and the resurrection uh, forever before the Lord, and uh, there will be no more pain or suffering. So in the end, this is the picture we get about Jesus and what he's about in Scripture. He was born, lived, and died as a Palestinian Jew of the Second Temple period, and we can understand him in that context. Jesus fulfilled all that had been written of the Messiah in the Law and the Prophets. He embodied the story of Israel. He proclaimed the coming kingdom of God, and he brought it satisfaction with his death and resurrection. The proclamation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension was made by the apostles, first to Israel and to all people, proclaiming forgiveness of sin, hope of resurrection, and the importance of serving Jesus as Lord. Two thousand years later, Jesus is still Lord, fully God, fully human, and worthy of all service and devotion, and we can have complete confidence that he's going to return one day to judge all of us according to what we have done in the body. And so now the question comes to us. This is the Jesus who was and is and is to come. What will we do with Jesus of Nazareth? Will we serve him so as to obtain the resurrection of life? Or will we turn from him and obtain the resurrection of condemnation? 
We hope and pray that you will choose to follow Jesus and to obtain the resurrection of life. My name's Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And we hope that you've been benefited by this exploration into who is Jesus, part of our series in 2017 on the fundamentals of the faith. If you have any questions or comments, if you'd like to discuss these things further, you'd like to consider other uh, installments in our consideration of the fundamentals, maybe you'd like to join us for an assembly or Bible study, you can find out more about us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on many forms of social media. If you'd like to contact me personally, uh, you can reach me through my website at DeVerbalVitae.com. That's www.D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.